Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We started up the very niche competitive sport of time trial shell company formation. And the current record is my friend and co-author Mike Finley set up one in Nevada in 137 seconds. So yeah, there's fun with shell companies. It's the corporate product of a thousand uses. Hello and welcome to the Whale Hunting Podcast, where we shine a light onto the hidden worlds of money and power every week. I'm Bradley Hope, and this week I'm joined by Jason Sharman, a professor of international relations at Cambridge University and author of several books, including the brilliantly named Despot's Guide to Wealth Management. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thank you. So you've had a very interesting career. You're kind of like a gonzo academic to some extent, right? Because you go out there and you actually do things. It's not sort of the passive professor sitting in the ivory tower. Could you just kind of give us a little bit of an overview of of your career? I would love to hear more about it. Sure. The approach has been that I'm interested in why rules often don't work. And the approach for testing that has sometimes been to break rules or try to break rules uh, and see what happens. And if you break rules and it's easy to break them and nothing bad happens to you, uh, to me, that's a good indication that a whole series of rules we have don't really work too well. I got interested in offshore financial centers or tax havens a bit over 20 years ago, and I didn't know anything about them when I started. And I was lucky enough to visit about 20 small islands in the Caribbean and the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, finding out about tax havens. And one of the organizations they mentioned was something called the Financial Action Task Force, which is the world's anti-money laundering standard setter and enforcer. Uh, and I got interested in the overlap of corruption and money laundering and other sorts of financial crimes uh, and the rules to stop them and whether or not those rules work. And when you were first kind of picking an area to focus on, how did you end up interested in this particular space? I mean, were you interested in the concept of the hidden power of money or what, what was intriguing to you about these islands? I was teaching a very cynical bunch of students in Eastern Europe, in Bulgaria, about anarchism, as one does. And uh, anarchists believe that states have to be really small. And my cynical students said, well, that's ridiculous. Small states would just get conquered by big states. So that's, that's incredibly utopian. And I did a quick check and was surprised to find out that there were 40 states with a population of under a million and about a dozen states with a population of about 100,000. Uh, and I thought, what do these tiny states do? And how do they get on with big states? And then by accident, I ran across a report about tax havens, and it got me interested in whether small states can annoy big states and get away with it. And that was what initially got me interested in the topic of tax havens or offshore centers, the small islands. And is there one particular tax haven that you've spent the most time studying, or has it been a pretty uh, general survey so far? 
It's been a pretty general survey. It's more breadth and depth. There have been a fair few people who have gone to stay on one island, anthropologists, uh, and study that in detail. And I've been kind of hopping from one island to the other. So I don't really have that much depth uh, in any one, but it's relatively unusual to go to so many. Um, And even people who live in small islands tend not to go to other small islands. So it's actually fairly rare to have a synoptic view, particularly across regions, say, uh, comparing the South Pacific to the Caribbean. Yeah, I had the experience of visiting just, uh, I think not, not very many of them, but one of them was Curacao, which I visited during the 1MDB investigation trying to follow the money. And what really struck me was how much was going on in on Curacao. You know, like you, you kind of hear about these offshore places as a passing reference, you know, like, oh, money went to the Cayman Islands or money went through the Seychelles or Curacao. And when I was there, there was, it was a whole like true crime drama. You know, there was mysterious murders. There was, you know, everybody knew each other and they kind of knew what each other were up to. And there was planes coming in and out all the time. It was so dramatic, you know. And so I think people don't realize maybe how much these countries role as an offshore haven changes the local life of people there in, in pretty profound ways. I think it can really change. And in some ways, that's the aim. Uh, I think lots of people from small states go to the Caymans and fall in love with the idea of you can have three flat rocks sticking out of the Caribbean, which are salt swamps, and you pass a series of laws and something magical happens. And you create an industry where there was none, and you create a very high, if unequally distributed, standard of living. And people in small island states think, well, if the Caymans can do this, uh, why can't we? It's rather like everywhere that wants to have a casino going to Las Vegas and saying, well, if Las Vegas can do this, surely we can too if we pass the right laws. And and there's kind of a lot of different species of offshore haven, right? Like some of them are almost less sophisticated. They're just a place where uh, a piece of paper is kept that holds some information and that's about it. And maybe they lose that information on purpose sometimes. And then other places seem to have more of like a, a sophisticated financial services side as well, right? Yeah, I think that there's a, a small number of offshore uh, centers that have actually done pretty well out of it, maybe half a dozen. And for the rest, I think it's it's almost a, a dream or an aspiration. As I say, people fall in love with the idea of something from nothing. But I think, yeah, you're right, that for most offshore it's um, centers... Uh, It's an ambition. Um, You might have what looks like a very modest family home and you find out that's the Ministry of Finance and that's where the financial industry is run from. You have a series of physically very small places that might, in theory, be home to a a large number of companies and in the olden days even home to relatively fictitious banks as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of these interesting mismatches of scale and, as you say, variation between the different islands. And and there's not really a strategic advantage here. It's not like there's a population that are really good at particular types of finance for some historical reason, right? Like, isn't it just the idea that they decided we can create this set of rules and that's the advantage of the island? You know, why is it that islands are doing that in general? Is there some historical kind of point when that started happening in a serious way? I think there's a couple of things. First off, tax havens and offshore tend to be what you do if you don't have too many other options. Lots of islands are very nice, so they have tourism, but tourism tends to be fickle. 
and there are lots of tourist places, so lots of competition. It tends to create low-wage jobs rather than skilled jobs. You're not exactly going to have a car plant or a nuclear power plant. or There's lots of things you can't do as an island because of problems of, of distance. So first off, I think there's just a lack of other options. Secondly, I mean, if there is an advantage with rare exceptions like the Dutch island of Curaçao you mentioned, having English as the English being the language of finance, thanks to the British Empire, many of the world's far-flung islands are English-speaking. So if there's a historical pattern to it, it's formerly British places with English and with a common law heritage. And the last one would be that becoming a tax haven in the 90s became sort of a fashion. Different islands look at what other islands are doing, and it, it just became the thing to do for a while, particularly in the 90s. So there was a rush to jump on the tax haven bandwagon, and so there was a lot of copying. You can't patent legislation. Uh, so if you, do, if you just cut and paste and change the name of the jurisdiction, uh, in some sense you're in business. I guess also there's a little bit of a um, whack-a-mole element to it as well, where one country seems to suddenly tighten up its regulations under supervision or, or in response to the FATF or something. And then another one sort of loosens their rules. And it's sort of, I, I guess, if you're somebody who needs the use of a tax haven, you have to have a kind of sophisticated understanding of which place is the current best place to operate from, right? Because I remember also with, with um, Joe Lowe, he had a problem where he was using the secrecy of the Seychelles at one point. But while he was off partying, he wasn't paying attention. And they decided to change it from a bearer share country to a non-bearer share country. And suddenly his name was on the registry of this company that was, it was very important that he was not on the registry of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the game's changed a bit. I think in the 90s, uh, it was very much kind of a race to the bottom. And there was competition about who could be the most secret. Uh, and places like the Seychelles were slightly leading that. And I think the game changed around the turn of the century, partly to do with the response to September 11 attacks, partly to do with various kind of supranational organisations, kind of alphabet soup of the OECD and FATF. So I think since that time, the glory days of the dark side of globalisation, to a, an interesting large extent, have been reversed so I don't think there's that same race to the bottom that people predicted and feared up until about 2001. You have a kind of journalistic side to your research. Just as a quick question about the islands, when you're visiting these islands and trying to understand their tax haven role, how are you getting people to talk to you? What was the technique that you used to elicit something truthful and I guess also to kind of assure them that you're not really focusing on them as a person? Sure. The initial leap of faith is if you go to places that specialize in secrecy and ask them what they do, you can't be too surprised when they don't reply or don't want to tell you. But it turned out to be easier than I expected. First of all, my main approach was I hear lots of things about tax havens, but not so much about tax havens from people who are actually there and work there. And I would like to get both sides of the story. So I'm interested in what you have to say. And because very few people actually go and visit these islands, people were actually quite happy often and quite impressed that someone would actually come and listen to their side of the story. So actually, they were surprisingly forthcoming. You probably won't be surprised to hear they felt very hard done by, uh, that they get a bad deal. 
Now, I think you can ask very reasonable questions as well. Is that really true? It's their side of the story. It's biased. It's self-serving. And I think those objections, are there's some merit there. But I think it's really useful to actually go and find out. And as you say, uh, if you go to places like Curacao, you do get a sense of what's going on and you get a feel for the jurisdiction, even in a short time that you really wouldn't just from Wikipediaing it or speaking to someone in Washington about it. I mean, was there any kind of eye-opening exchanges you had where somebody said something to you that was quite clear and crystallized? I guess at that point, you were sort of testing out this as a an area of focus. What helped you decide, yeah, I'm going to commit to this and really understand it in a big way? I think it was the combination of it seemed like something other people hadn't really done before. I mean, it's not rocket science. If you want to find out about a place, why not go there and ask some questions? And yet, not many people had done that for 20 different tax havens. Partly, it was this idea of finding out whether rules work, and particularly international rules work, by trying to break them. And that hadn't really been done before. And then I think just the mismatch of small places, big money, really improbably small places and improbably large sums of money. And that was just, for me, a kind of a fascinating contrast that really kind of hooked me uh, and that I thought that other people should know about too. It really is kind of amazing to think about that it is kind of a mirage as well. There's an island with a sort of a document or a database of information. The money is actually still in New York or London or wherever. But for some reason, the information about whose money it is is kept in an island under lock and key with different regulations. So people always think, oh, all this money is offshore, when in reality, it's, it's right here. It's just the registry of who owns it is offshore, right? Yeah, exactly as you say, money goes through offshore generally. It's not heaped up in bank vaults in these places. So offshore is primarily like a, a channel or a conduit that takes money from onshore and pipes it back there in a different form or under a different name. So that's exactly right. So tell me about your first big sort of investigative project as an academic. I know that you've done a few different rounds of it, but how did it come about? And then maybe just explain what it was and then what you sort of discovered. Sure. I mean, the idea was taken from a Peruvian economist called Hernando de Soso, who was interested in regulation and business. And he said, okay, well, look, if I want to get a small business license in Peru, I could read the legislation that would tell me how it's meant to work in theory, or I could try and get a small business license, and that would tell me how it worked in practice. And he went and tried to get a small business license and found out it was incredibly difficult and took 10 months, and he had to buy, pay lots of bribes, and it was a, a real saga. And he got a team of people to do this across different areas of Latin America and found out, probably not surprisingly, but it's good to have the evidence that laws on the books often don't correspond with what actually happens in practice. And I thought, well, this to me seems both commonsensical, but also very powerful. And I thought there are rules that, at least in theory, govern getting an offshore company or an offshore bank account. I'm going to try and do what Hernando de Soto did, except instead of trying to get a small business license, I'm going to get online and see if I can shop around for some offshore shell companies and bank accounts and maybe buy the odd one too. So I looked in the back pages of The Economist and then just did some very simple Googling and got a menu of places and then drafted up an email and said, I'd like an offshore company. I don't like paying tax. I don't like people knowing my business. 
what can you do for me and how much will it cost and what documents do I have to provide? And then waited to see if people would get back in touch, which they generally did. And what did they tell you? What was the surprise of that experience? The surprise of that experience was, I think, that the places onshore, which I think popular stereotypes would suggest are the most rigorous or most compliant when it comes to enforcing financial standards and transparency, uh, actually tended to be the most lax and that, in fact, the stereotypical palm-fringed islands actually tended to be relatively rigorous and the island places would say, you've got to prove to us who you are uh, or else we're not going to give you a company. Whereas places in Australia and Britain and especially the United States said, we don't care who you are, we'll send you a company and a bank account too. I mean, this was now a while ago I started doing this, but I was amazed that a place in Wyoming not only would set up a company for me, uh, set up a bank account, you could tick a box where you got attorney-client privilege for an extra $150. So it's like ordering a plane ticket or ordering something from Amazon. But they also offered to rent out their employee's social security number for me as well if I wanted to get into the US tax system but not actually be identified in my own name. So they were really the full service and they had just a kind of breathtaking breeziness and casual air as they were kind of outrageously debauching the standards that are meant to govern this sort of international commerce. Everyday people are just going about their lives and all around them, everything seems to be working fine in in the sense that their bank account works. But I mean, have you become kind of cynical through this experience that the world is so much more, I guess, dark and dysfunctional and leaky than anybody can really perceive on a day-to-day basis? I mean, have you become kind of a a brooding sort of dark figure because of your experience so far? (laughs) Um, It's probably an occupational hazard for academics just anyway, but I think no, and in some ways the opposite, in that I think there has been actually progress, it's been uneven, and I think the rules and realities still diverge, Uh, but I think in important areas there's been achievements in trying to fight some aspects of financial crime, and in some ways life has got harder at least for the small and medium-sized financial criminal, maybe if not for the really big ones. And that, as I mentioned, things in the small islands have really changed since the 1990s, and that's because of outside pressure put on them. So I think that the metaphor of this is inevitable, it's whack-a-mole, it's globalisation, there's nothing we can do, is actually not true. And there are things we have done successfully, and there are other things that we could do and should do in the future. So it's become harder to be a financial criminal than ever before, in a sense. Yeah. If you're a small-time crook or a medium-time crook, life has become harder for certain kinds of financial crime. Now, you know, there's a glass half empty or half full. There are still lots of criminals happily going about their business, unmolested by the rules that are meant to be stopping them. But I think it's wrong to say that it's futile we can't do anything about this, that we've made no progress, that all of the policy has achieved nothing. I I think that's simplistic and and negative. What's your biggest pet peeve when you watch some kind of work of popular culture and they refer to offshore banking or whatever? Is there any kind of egregious simplification that's kind of commonly seen? I think it is this idea of if it's got palm trees and beaches, it has 
dirty money. And if it doesn't have palm trees and beaches, it does not have dirty money. And I think, in a sense, people know this because, you know, Russian oligarchs don't live in Georgetown in the Caymans or in Willemstead in Curaçao. They live in London and the south of France and they have their money with them. But yeah, I think there is still this um, hard to shake idea of treasure islands and all the dirty money is offshore and that means all the money onshore is clean. I think that's a big problem, uh, both historically and currently. Yeah. What's next for you? What's the kind of evolution of your research? Where are you focusing in now that you've done some of these broader surveys over time? How are you focusing now? I think probably two things that we're interested in testing the effectiveness of. So together with a couple of co-authors, uh, Dan Nilsson and Mike Finley at University of Texas, we're interested in testing the effectiveness of financial sanctions. And this was partly inspired by Russian invasion of Ukraine, although, of course, there'd been sanctions before that. There are a whole lot of people who shouldn't be getting access to the financial system. Can they? Are they really? So again, we're impersonating people on sanctions lists and seeing if they can get access to the financial system in violation of the rules that are meant to stop them. And secondly, we've done a lot of this shopping online, via the web, via email, but we're getting a, a friend and colleague to fly around the world and do some in-person shopping as well for offshore companies and offshore bank accounts. So we're interested in seeing what happens when you do this face-to-face. Do people observe the rules more or less? Are there things that people say in person that they don't say on email? To what extent uh, does it matter when you can see the whites of the eyes of the person selling this stuff to you? So we're interested to see how both of those projects turn out. I would imagine at this point you actually currently own some offshore companies. So how many do you own currently and what services do you offer to the average person? (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, yes. So I think together with Dan and Mike, we probably own about, 10 shell companies. They have to be kept up. It's You mentioned Jolo wasn't paying attention and then something expires or changes. Shell companies aren't much work, but you do have to pay some attention once per year as they expire. We started up the very niche competitive sport of time trial shell company formation. And the current record for anyone out there is that my friend and co-author Mike Finley set up one in Nevada, I think in 137 seconds. So that's a challenge for all your listeners. Can you form a shell company in under 137 seconds? So yeah, there's fun with shell companies. There's more than you think. It's the corporate product of a thousand uses. And could you just tell the listeners the titles of your books you've written? So in case they wanted to dig in a bit more. Sure. There's a couple that might be relevant. And one is called Global Shell Games. And as the name suggests, that's about offshore and shell companies and the crimes that shell companies are used to facilitate. That's co-authored with Mike and Dan. And another one called The Despot's Guide to Wealth Management. And that's a book I wrote about grand corruption and how people, state leaders, steal lots of money and where they put the money, which is mainly places like the United States and Britain and Switzerland. So those would probably be the two most relevant. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks to Jason for joining us. You can find The Despot's Guide to Wealth Management online along with Jason's other books. The best way to stay up to date with whale hunting is to hit follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also subscribe to the Whale Hunting newsletter for updates on the shadowy lives of the powerful and the ultra wealthy at whalehunting.projectbrazen.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for more. 
Whale Hunting is a production of Project Brazen. It's hosted by me, Tom Wright, and Bradley Hope. It's produced by Megan Dean and Claire Urban. At Project Brazen, Mariangel Gonzalez is our project manager. Ryan Ho is the creative director, with additional design from Andrea Claridge.